From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. We Southern Californians are all trying to adjust to the order we stay at home. From new strategies for supermarket shopping to ways of getting out and enjoying a beautiful day, it's all changing. But some Angelinos were behaving as though nothing had changed. Hiking trails, beaches, and farmer's markets had many folks bunched up and not observing a six-foot buffer. We'll hear what listeners experienced when out in the world over this past weekend. We'll also continue our daily check-in with medical experts. We'll be joined by both an epidemiologist and a primary care physician who's dealing with patients daily. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Very good Monday morning to you. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you're well. I hope that you and your family members, those closest to you, are in good health as we continue to focus on both COVID-19, the coronavirus itself, as well as the complexities of life now living with the uh, public health orders that we are to keep our distance from people, not go out to any sort of public gatherings and keeping ourselves and others in our community safe. Uh, I was out with my wife and son uh, taking long walks both days, particularly Saturday. What a gorgeous day here in Southern California. And it's just wonderful to be outside. And after being cooped up inside, as so many of us are, for so many hours each day, uh, and and wonderful to be out. And I was impressed with how people were keeping that physical distance, the six-foot buffer and letting people on sidewalks, you know, go by or stepping out um, away from the sidewalk for someone else to pass. It was very impressive. And then I, I saw the coverage of beaches overrun with people, um, with farmer's markets, people standing right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, hiking trails uh, overrun, and understandable in in fact, we heard from public health officials, get out, walk, hike. You can do all these things. Just don't gather in groups and provide physical distance. Well, of course, uh, a lot of people took the part about getting outside, getting fresh air, being physically active, but didn't take as seriously the keeping six-foot physical distance. Later this hour, we'll hear what your experiences were being out in the world over the weekend and your thoughts about how people uh, responded to uh, the uh, request that all of us honor physical distancing. But we begin by opening up the phones for you to ask questions of our medical experts who are kindly joining us this morning. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-KPECC. You can also ask on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, you can tweet at AirTalk, or you can post on our AirTalk Facebook page. Joining us from Huntington Hospital in Pasadena is infectious disease specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, thank you very much. Good to have you with us today. Nice to be with you, Larry. First of all, how is Huntington um, responding to the increase in people presenting at the emergency room? Have you had problems handling the uh, demand? Well, as you can imagine, all hospitals right now are really under a tremendous amount of stress to uh, handle the number of patients who are concerned about this infectious disease or who are showing symptoms of it. 
Uh, Huntington has been prepared for a pandemic, uh, and we uh, mobilized our task force very early as we began to realize that this was going to uh, occur in California pretty quickly. And so we've been uh, coming up with a a good plan. We've had to uh, make some uh, adaptations as things, as the volume goes up and down. Uh, But I think that we are uh, trying to create a system that's pretty smooth so that uh, patients are uh, taken care of properly, but also we protect our healthcare staff because that's so very important during this pandemic. Do you have any um, capacity for testing beyond those who uh, are within the narrow category of people previously approved for testing? Well, this has been one of the biggest frustrations, I think, for all hospitals, um, and certainly for ours, is the availability of testing. And it's it's really more complicated than just having the test. It's not only the test itself, uh, which now we, we are able to outsource our tests to both Quest and AirUp, although we tend to use Quest more than the other. Uh, but the turnaround time because of the volume that these labs are seeing is now uh, two or three or four days. And uh, the other problem is is that in testing, you have to use a nasopharyngeal swab, and those are actually also in short supply. Um, and so for right now, what we're doing is trying to test those individuals who are likely to have this disease and pose uh, and, are, and are symptomatic with it uh, or that pose some particular risk to the community. Uh, we're hoping by the end of the month that we will have more available testing in-house that will be faster so that we can screen those patients very quickly. But right now, it's pretty much limited to people that have a high index of suspicion, as I think a lot of hospitals are doing as well. Do you have enough face masks for hospital personnel? We do right now, but that is an enormous uh, concern, is the personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers. Um, The shortage is certainly looming. We're trying to look into very creative ways of facilitating that, including for the face mask issue anyway, um, having people uh, make some face masks for our our staff. all of this stuff is back ordered, and it's uh, it's very hard to get a hold of uh, very uh, you know brand new N95s and so forth. But I have to say the community has really stepped up and has been offering to uh, provide donations from uh, other kinds of venues, construction uh, donations, uh, the film industry, and so forth. So uh, we have a limited supply. We're trying to use it very sparingly, uh, but um, hopefully in the next few weeks with the government's help and also with our community that we'll be able to increase that. You know, of course, two months from now, you'll be awash in N95 masks. You'll have just... And that will be a blessing. You'll, you'll have uh, flats full of them sitting in, in storage, and you need them now, of course. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Also with us from UCLA Health, internal medicine physician and pediatrician, Dr. Anuradha uh, Sashadri. Thank you, Dr. Sashadri, for being with us. You're seeing patients on the front line in a clinical setting. Uh, so w- what are some of the frustrations you're dealing with? Well, we've had to completely turn around our clinic in the way that we're practicing. So most of our outpatient clinics are turning towards telephone visits as well as video visits as to limit exposure. Um, so as far as our latest uh, our our last um, updates, we've gotten up to 2,000 video visits in one day. And this is just increasing as we're going. And just compared to an average, um, when we were doing face-to-face visits, that's 400 visits per day. Now we're doing over 2,000 telemedicine visits in one day. So having to prep for that. Um, UCLA also is providing testing at 14 primary care sites other than just the emergency room so that we're trying to even it out not to over um, 
trying to take off some of that heat that the emergency department is feeling. But within our primary care sites, we're also trying to implement drive-by testing so as to limit exposure, be able to also isolate healthy patients. That's something in my office personally that we're doing. We're limiting our healthy patients to only being seen in the morning. That includes well child checks, um, anybody that has any potential broken bones, um, especially being that have to be seen in my urgent care center, uh, and then limiting all the rest of the time for dealing with sick patients that may need to be physically seen as well. Dr. Anu, what about testing? Um, are, are you able to get the people who most need it tested? And how long is the turnaround? We're hearing at Huntington from the private labs, two, three, four days. Um, it's it's about the same turnaround time for us, too. So I wanted to talk about the testing in general. Number one, we have to get a good nasopharyngeal swab sample. Uh, some of the patients are returning, coming back, saying that they have indeterminate tests, and it's up to the physicians to determine whether or not to re-swab the patient based on their symptoms, based on how far along they are from the last known exposure. Um, we're, again, running short on supplies, too. Um, as far as... Uh, I, we were, and now we've turned it around, and we are getting help from UCLA. Uh, we do have enough PPE, especially in these clinics that are doing um, testing. Um, but we're trying to limit it, again, to those that are symptomatic, um, that do have known exposures or do have a known travel history to the endemic areas. Do you think that video appointments can um significantly replace the need for in-person visits to your clinic? At this time, yes, in the sense that we really have to limit exposure. And I know initially you were talking about just going outside and enjoying, you know, a walk outside. And we really, the public needs to be aware of this and the public needs to take that sense of responsibility and self-responsibility to maintaining that six-foot distance. So this is, we're trying our best to to help patients out so that they can maintain their isolation at home. But it's it's also interesting for me to see, I was just perusing on social media late last night, and it was disheartening for me to see some of the younger generation, 20s, 30s, they are taking this as time to be in their apartments, but still meeting together and having parties within their apartments. And this is going against what we're recommending, correct? Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about what people experienced over the course of, of the weekend. That's coming up a little bit later. We're talking right now with Dr. Anurada Sashadri, a UCLA Health. She's uh, an internist and pediatrician by specialties. Also with us, infectious disease specialist from Pasadena's Huntington Hospital, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. We're at 866 893 KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dr. Schreiner, I did want to ask you about people being out, because my understanding is being out is okay. Uh, People need to go to the supermarket. Um, uh, They do, you know, need to exercise. Um, It's it's the observing the six-foot distancing that's critical. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, uh, Larry. And I think that the really important thing here is that You know, for all of our technology, the most important implementations that we're going to have to turn this epidemic in the right direction is very simple epidemiology and keeping the hosts away from one another. Uh, That is so very important. And uh, although we certainly encourage people to live as healthy a lifestyle as they can while they're 
uh, sequestered at their homes uh, to please uh, observe the six feet recommendation that every time you have closer contact with a person and you may not even be symptomatic with the virus or know that you're infected, um, you could certainly pass it to the other person. And so although we want people to be outside and enjoy the beautiful air that we have since we don't have quite so much traffic as we normally do, um, it's important that you observe that six-feet perimeter uh, so that you don't pass uh, that this virus or other infectious diseases uh, with it. Um, and I think it's it, the market is a, is a little bit of a challenge. I know a lot of the grocers are observing, uh, trying to limit the number of people in the store at any one time, and we uh, really want to take particular um, uh, care with our checkers because they're exposed to a lot of the public uh, in this situation. So, um, you know, the, the final thing is, is that mental health is an important part of this. If people are cooped up with their families too long in the house, uh, that can lead to some problems. This is going to be a long haul, so we encourage people to, to go outside and enjoy the beautiful fresh air and some nature and and so forth, but please to observe the six-foot parameter. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital, Pasadena. Um, reading a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal from physicians Jeff Collier and Daniel Hinthorn. Uh, Collier is a practicing physician. Hinthorn directs uh, University of Kansas Medical Center's Division of Infectious Disease. And they were talking about some of the promise from uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, an anti-malarial drug, and what we know is the Zithromax Z-Pak, or Zithromycin, in combination therapy, um, and um, that that in, in these sort of, you know, small-scale usage, almost anecdotally, have shown some real promise. Dr. Schreiner, your thoughts about the potential in the combination therapy of those two drugs? Well, uh, it is an interesting observation. It's based largely on a study that was done in France with about 20 patients and did seem to show some, show some benefit early on. Uh, the Chinese also uh, utilized some of this, and there were some indications. If you look at hydroxychloroquine, which is, goes by the trade name of Plaquenil, it's a drug that was designed actually came out of chloroquine, which is the malarial medicine, uh, but this medicine is designed for treating immunologic disorders like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and so forth. Uh, it does denature the virus and interferes with some of the viral replication. It may help prevent the virus from attaching and does so sh show some promise in the Petri dish. dish. Uh, and it may be enhanced by its activity with the azithromycin as sort of a boosting agent. But the study is very, very small, and we have to be so very careful about how much weight we put on these studies that are really, as you pointed out, anecdotal and not well-designed um, double-blind studies. Uh, this this really seems very much like the very early days of the AIDS epidemic when we were so desperate to try to find some medications that we ran through a lot of old medications that may have been helpful. Now, that did eventually produce AZT, so I think it is worth looking back, but we also need to be very careful about how we uh, tr use these medications in people, and we have to try to rely on science. Dr. Anu, I wanted to ask you about a listener question. This comes uh, from... Uh, let's see, Laura, in the city of Orange, she says, someone who's been using hydroxychloroquine for years for an autoimmune disorder, uh, is there any indication I might be more protected from COVID-19? We have another listener who's also been using uh, the medication for years, but is now having trouble getting it because of people using it off-label. Dr. Anu? Um, as far as hydroxychloroquine and using it, again, like Dr. Schweiner said, we just don't have enough studies to show whether or not this is being protected. Again, the way that it was being used was in a treatment measure, not as a preventative measure. So I cannot 
I, I don't have an answer for that question, unfortunately. But the second, uh, an answer to the second question, it is very unfortunate. I have patients personally in my clinic that are finding very, it very hard to get a hold of Plaquenil, and we just don't know what to do. We're trying to call in pharmacies. Pharmacies are trying to get um, more of a supply, but I'm asking people to be patient and not go ahead and buy these medications. The other medication to add on the list is remdesivir, which is an antiviral that was also it is also currently being studied as well and it's an antiviral medication that inserts itself into the viral genome supposedly and speeds up termination or killing of this virus so these are three medications that have been talked about on the news but at the end of the day we just don't have enough studies and we need more time before we can state that this is effective same thing with Plaquenil we have to think about the side effects of all these medications yes it can be potentially beneficial but we need to look at the side effects as well and Plaquenil does have a lot of side effects that come along with it dealing with your white cell count photosensitivity etc. We're talking with Dr. Anuradha Sashadri, uh, internal medicine uh, physician and pediatrician. Her specialty is at UCLA Health, so in the clinical setting, she's seeing, seeing patients every day. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital Pasadena Infectious Disease Specialist, joining us on AirTalk. We'll continue with our physicians answering your questions. We have lines open at 866 866- 893-KPCC, Zumi in Arcadia, wants to ask about the virus's apparent ability uh, to stay in the air. What does that mean if you're walking into a space where someone has recently been? We'll hear what the physicians have to say about that. 866-893-5722, back in one minute on AirTalk. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're doing what we've been doing every day, having an epidemiologist with us, infectious disease specialist, to answer your questions about COVID-19. And today we add to that someone in clinical practice who's right there on the front line seeing patients at a very high volume during this era <clears throat> Excuse me, of COVID-19. I just want to remind you that KPECC is still raising money to support AirTalk. Even as our producers work from home, except our senior producer, Fiona Ng, who's in the studio with our two news apprentices working hard on the show each day, we still are bringing you this program. And uh, uh, Parker, our, our technical director, also there at the console, uh, making sure that everything is going well. We're here to bring you this vital information, and it's still expensive to do so. We have to raise a million dollars during this uh, typical spring member drive period. We've suspended the on-air fundraising that we typically do, but the need is still there. Last week, we had a tremendous outpouring of support from AirTalk listeners. Every time I would bring this up, the phone lines would just fill with generous listeners like yourself. So I'm asking you to please make your contribution right now at 866 888 
888-5722 or kpcc.org. I thank you so much. We are working on a very important challenge uh, right now. Uh, we have 245 members to go in a $10,000 challenge from um, our wonderful friends, SCPR Life trustee Virgil Roberts, his wife Brenda, both of them longtime listener, member, supporters, uh, in Virgil's case, board member of KPECC. We also have our partnership with the LA Food Bank that's going on right now, where your thank you gift can be meals for those who are hungry. And thankfully, with so much of the food from restaurants that isn't being served, much of that is being donated to the food bank for people who are in need. So so it's sort of turning a terrible thing for restaurants into a positive for those families in need. You can make your gift uh, that very, very special way of helping those who are most hungry. 866-888-5722. And thank you. Let's continue with questions for our physicians on the program right now. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital, uh, uh, Anurada uh, Sashadri of UCLA Health, both with us. And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Schreiner, about a question that comes from a listener. Um, when you when you walk through an area where someone has just been, since we know the virus can linger in the air, how much of a risk is there in that? Well, you know, this was an article published in the New England Journal last week that actually addressed that, uh, Larry. Um, and, um, you know, we know that this is a droplet-mediated virus. It has to sort of be suspended in a little bit of mucus to be viable and infectious. And it's been sort of a challenge to, to really delineate how infectious it is. It is not as infectious, for example, as something like measles, which we know is an airborne viral disease where just somebody being in the same room and breathing can infect other people. But we are concerned about aerosolization. In other words, when someone coughs, those particles circulate in the air and how long do they circulate and how long are they infectious? And the study that was done in New England Journal uh, that was published last week basically looked at that um, and what that they found is that for this virus and, and for the previous SARS-CoV uh, virus, uh, that it may stay aerosolized in the air uh, for up to about three hours in someone who's had either an aerosolization procedure, for example, they had a breathing treatment, or if they were actively coughing. Now, we don't know whether those viral particles that are circulating are still infectious, uh, and it may have a lot to do with how much virus the person actually coughs out if they are in the, in the throes of having the disease. So, for example, <clears throat> at the hospital when we're doing procedures on patients, whether we're giving them breathing treatments or we're using different types of oxygen delivery systems or if we're intubating a patient, those are very high-risk aerosolization procedures and we take appropriate precautions. For the average person who walks into a room where someone else may have been who had COVID, I think the risk is still relatively small as long as they remain about six feet apart. Okay. But we do want people who are actively coughing to um, to stay away from other people, and I think that's just a reminder that uh, it may be uh, perhaps more infectious than, in some respects than we actually originally realized. Melvin in Westchester asked Dr. Anu, I'll go to you for this, uh, have we seen any sort of analysis of whether this year's flu vaccine provides any protective benefit from COVID-19? We have not. Uh, just, again, it's 
they're two different types of viruses, two different genomes. Um, as far as what we're doing in retrieving data, this is why within our testing sites that's offered within UCLA, we are testing patients for not only COVID-19, but also flu as well. So we'll be getting more data across the board from different places, and then we'll be able to answer that question. But as of right now, not necessarily. If uh, someone suspects that they could have COVID-19, they're quarantining at, at home, uh, their symptoms are, are not serious enough to need hospitalization, what should they be doing, Dr. Anu, for self-care medications, or do you, do you treat it like you would the flu? Flu or just a common cold. This is where it is a virus. So no no real medication generally will be able to kill a virus. It's your own body that has the capability to do this. So it's protecting and supporting your body so that it is the healthiest and strongest to kill the virus and get over your symptoms. Um, so what I, it's just basic, basic measures as if you had a cold, rest, hydrate, uh, supportive care measures, which is over-the-counter cold medications, vitamin C, zinc you know, things things like that, making sure that you are eating properly, getting the rest that you need, again, maintaining isolation and strict hygienic precautions. And I did want to add to that, if you are coughing, this is why we're asking to cough into your sleeve, right? Sleeve or armpit, um, so as to stop the droplets from spreading as well. All right. Uh, let's see, we have uh, another question. This has come up almost daily. This is from Tushka in Valley Village. If you uh, are infected with COVID-19 and you go through the period where you seem to come out the other end uh, of the virus, are are you then immune from getting it again, Dr. Schreiner? Well, that is an important question. Um, you know, and the you know we know that most of the time with a lot of uh, viruses that you do develop antibodies to the virus and that those are protective. Uh, the Chinese were actually looking at using antibodies from people that had been previously infected as a form of treatment in, in, in patients who were actively infected. But we just really don't know at this point. Um, we think that uh, that may be true, and we certainly hope that's true because that will impact our ability to design a vaccine. But we do have to be very careful and look at the data as this pandemic progresses. Uh, sometimes these things, the immunity can wane and you can uh, develop the infection again. Certainly we know these viruses replicate quickly and change their genetic material. So you may be immune to one uh, variety and then something happens to the virus and you're not immune to the next one. So we really don't know the answer to that. We think that probably you are. Uh, and we certainly hope that people are because this, again, will impact vaccine development, but we don't know for sure. I want to thank you both so much. Just terrific um, having you with us answering listener questions. We're doing this every day, and I, I so appreciate the two of you taking this time in this uh, very stressful and and hardworking period. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, and Dr. Anuradha Seshradri, internal medicine and pediatrician specialist UCLA Health. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC. To prime us for our listener conversation later this hour on how you experienced being out in the world this weekend, I wanted to hear from the leaders of two of our Southern California communities known for their beautiful beaches, for tourism, and being destination places for people to go from throughout Southern California to enjoy a beautiful day. Unfortunately for 
Laguna Beach and for Santa Monica, that proved to be a significant problem. We begin with the mayor of Laguna Beach, Bob Whalen. Mayor Whalen, thank you for being with us. Uh, I understand you, your city was was heavily overrun, particularly the beaches Saturday. Yes, we had a number of visitors come to town. The road into town was jammed as it would be on any nice day uh, that we have. And uh, we ended up meeting an emergency session yesterday for about 90 minutes and determining that the right move for our community was to close our beaches. And unless the state or the county takes action before five o'clock today, we will close them by local order. It's unfortunate because it would be ideal for your local residents to be able to out, be out, walk on the beach, be able to, you know, observe six uh, foot distancing minimum. Uh, it's a shame that this wonderful resource has to be closed because people weren't complying with the distancing order. Well, our concern was for a couple of things. One, our first responders and two, our local residents and it just the given the geography of our community and our beach accesses you know we've got a lot of bluff tops we've got over 20 stairways down to the beaches that are narrow it's not possible to have six foot distancing on these stairways coming up and down some of those stairways were very crowded uh crosswalks were crowded as people waited to go across to the beach uh walkways in our uh, two beachfront parks are uh, just not large enough with large crowds to allow that distancing. So, um, you know, we just decided in the short term it's uh, the right move to make, and every contact we can avoid is a potential life saved. We're talking with the mayor of Laguna Beach, Bob Whalen. So is that is that going to be in effect for the foreseeable future? Um, you just think because of those geographic limitations, um, there's no safe way to reopen the beach till we're through this? We will review it periodically. Right now, we think we're at, you know, the we're heading into the teeth of this crisis, and uh, we're just going to uh, go with that for now. We will continue to review it and uh, make the best decision we can going forward. But, yeah, for now, the foreseeable future, I'd say at least for the next couple of weeks, we're going to leave it shut. All right. Mayor Whalen, thank you so much. Appreciate your sharing with us how your city's dealing with being inundated with people going to the beach in Laguna Beach over the weekend. Terry O'Day is the mayor pro tem of Santa Monica, where parking lots uh, were closed at the beach because of the thousands of people who turned out. Mayor O'Day, thank you for being with us. Um, is, are the parking lots going to continue to be closed? Yeah, pleased to be with you, Larry. We will keep the parking lots closed. You know, the beach itself is still open, uh, but the lots are closed. The beach will still be there after this crisis is over. And we felt we had to take action uh, to protect public health for the entire region. Um, You know, we too have some narrow beach walk paths. And what we were witnessing over the weekend was people not being able to manage social distancing the way that we have been ordered throughout the state. I mean, it would seem in some cases, and I understand there are, you know, as Mayor Whalen was talking about, just there are narrow spaces, bluff tops and the like, where it is, it's just difficult to do that. But what's your sense of how much of it were the physical limitations versus people just, I'm outside, I'm free, and, you know, not just not thinking as they were being in a large public place like that with thousands of others? Well, we all wanted to get out of our houses, and that's an important thing for us to exercise, you know, while we're um, 
still quarantined at home. And so I think everyone had some of the same ideas, which was, you know, get out to these large public spaces. Unfortunately, getting to those spaces, uh, participating in safe ways in those spaces became very difficult. Um, And for us, you know, we have large beaches, but uh, some of the inner some of the walkways and interactions that you can have are, are actually still quite tight. So those beach parking lots are the uh, only way that we had to really control um, how many people could experience the beach at one time. And you're not looking at closing the beaches themselves at this point? We have not taken that measure. Um, we are acting aggressively to slow the spread of this virus and, and enforce social distancing. Unfortunately, not everyone is um, is taking this crisis quite as seriously, and so uh, we have to uh, do what we can to protect everyone's safety, even when there are actors who are not using common sense measures like walking a safe distance around someone when you see them uh, coming towards you. Uh, Mayor O'Day, you have one of the most popular farmers markets uh, in Santa Monica. Farmers markets are staying open like supermarkets. They provide an extremely valuable service to your residents. But uh, has that proven a, a challenge to have people keep their distance in this farmers market? It is a trick um, because just like the supermarkets, I think you probably have heard stories that it can be difficult for people to maintain social distancing there and they're limiting the number of folks that can come into those spaces. So we're taking measures to be as safe as we can. Um, We do control the spaces of those farmer markets. So uh, we have the ability uh, to put in place direct measures that uh, enforce safe social distancing. And when we get to a point where we see that those aren't working, then, you know, we'll reconsider how we provide that service to our community. All right, Mayor O'Day, thank you, sir, for being with us. Mayor Whalen of Laguna Beach, we appreciate you, too. I just thought it made sense. We talked with the mayors of those two destination cities with some of the most beautiful beaches in the world and people coming out in droves on Saturday and Sunday, understandably, but not Um, in some cases able to, in other cases not consciously observing the six-foot physical distancing necessary uh, to tamp down transmission of COVID-19. Terry O'Day, Mayor Pro Tem Santa Monica, Bob Whalens, the mayor of Laguna Beach. So now I'd like to hear from you, your experience when you were out in the world. I told you ours was very positive with the very long walks that we took Saturday and Sunday and Um, You know, there was distance. People were really uh, respecting it and observing it. I couldn't believe the number of runners that were out because probably a lot of people who go to the gym not able to do so. So running took its place. What did you see if you were out and about hiking, cycling, walking, running? Um, If you were out uh, just shopping at the supermarket, what were your experiences How seriously did you see people taking the restrictions as a part of COVID-19? 866-893-5722 or kpcc.org. Back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. 
I, I just want to start by thanking you for all the wonderful feedback that we've been getting at KPCC for our in-depth coverage of COVID-19. It really means a lot for us, um, as there's a good chance you're operating as well uh, under you know very um, different and sometimes challenging circumstances to have people working at home and collaborating as a team and making that work. I'm sure in, in your workplace, uh, if you're working from home, you're experiencing how to do that. But I just want to let you know how much it means to get the positive feedback that we have. We thank you very much. And also the wonderful calls and your participation. And uh, it's just, it's great. Uh, I'm asking you for that right now. It's just us talking together for the rest of this hour. Uh, ahead of Austin Butner, the superintendent of LA Unified, addressing the public school community. That's coming up at 11 o'clock. I want to hear from you what your experience was like being out in the world on the beautiful Saturday out as well yesterday. What did you experience in the way of crowds of people observing a six-foot minimum physical buffer between each other? 866-893-KPECC. Doug, in Hermosa Beach, I understand that you own one of the restaurants on the on the pier at Hermosa. What was it like there? Yeah, uh, I own Silvio's Barbecue down on the pier. It was a nice weekend. We were down there. Um, I was down there just continuing to close down the shop and make sure we're good to go for the long duration. Uh, there were people about, but everybody is keeping social, social distances. Um, you know, just the South Bay community is very beach centric. Everybody's very bike friendly. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like some of the places I've seen on TV, although there's just a lot of people walking around within safe distances. Yeah. None of the businesses are down there except I think the liquor store right now. So I agree that closing the parking lots down and allowing the people who live in these beach communities to utilize the beach, I think that's fine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, and I believe that our city is just shutting down the parking lots. There's a lot of information that always comes down the pipeline every day. So I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, but it sounds really good that what you saw at Hermosa was people... Um, able to observe the distancing and still be outside and enjoy uh, a beautiful weekend. That's nice. And, Doug, we wish you all the best with the restaurant long-term as well. Thank you for for joining us. All right, Doug, in Hermosa Beach, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Jeanette in Valencia said, I was taking my son to his dad's house. I drove by some stores that were by the railroad. I saw couple groups of guys just drinking beer outside, totally disregarding distancing recommendations and kind of freaked me out. That's Jeanette in Valencia, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Boyle Heights writes on the AirTalk page, the Evergreen Cemetery jogging path in Boyle Heights was very crowded and people run past way too close. I started sticking out my arm like a school bus as people run by, so at least they stay one arm's length away from me, but I think I'm going to stop walking there. Yeah, it sounds like Evergreen Cemetery, that path is a similar problem that the mayor of Laguna Beach was describing where it's it's just hard for people to give that safe distance. You know, when we were out 
walking through our community, there were times we just, you know, because the traffic was light, we were able to move into the street to give enough distance or other walkers or runners would move out into the street to try and give that distance. But you don't always have a place where you can have that kind of buffer. 866-893-KPCC. 866-893-5722. How did you experience being out in the world on Saturday and Sunday? Timothy in Silver Lake, I understand you went up to Echo Mountain in the San uh, Gabriel Mountains. What, what was the trail like? The trail was packed. I've never seen more people on that trail than Saturday morning. I thought it was a way to kind of escape the crowd. Yeah. It absolutely wasn't. And the unfortunate thing about the trail, although it was wonderful to be outdoors and in the mountains, it's so narrow with steep drop-offs on one side and a steep incline on the other, and people are trying to go up and people are trying to go down, and the trail is too narrow to accommodate people hiking in both directions. So you were at some point shoulder to shoulder with people. So. Yeah. And I find that trail hair raising anyway for the reasons you mentioned. And when you add people passing each other going the same direction, uphill or downhill, with people going two directions, I understand why that was. Um, an anxiety-producing hike. So, Timothy, are you just going to put a moratorium on your hiking till this passes? Well, I'm not, but I'm going to go a little bit further afield. And I said to my friend, after we did it, I said, next time we do this hike, it will be like Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Timothy, that makes sense. Yeah, it was just with the weekend. All of us were out, and um, understandably. Timothy hiking up Echo Mountain in the San Gabriels, 866-893-KPCC, or our AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also tweet at AirTalk, uh, or you can post on our AirTalk page. Facebook page. Uh, April said, I walked into Simply Wholesome, the restaurant. I saw a lot of cars, but when I got in, people were taking it very, very seriously. Uh, Audrey in South Los Angeles, I understand uh, you're at USC. Are you a a student or a member of the faculty? Hi, Larry. Um, I'm a student right now. I'm a sophomore at USC. Very good. So your life has sure been upended. Did you go back to campus? I did um, come back to campus because I live in Gardena. Um, I wanted to be able to concentrate while at school, but it's definitely very different now. It's kind of eerie being on campus, a place that's always hustling and bustling and hardly anyone there. Yeah, this is actually our first day back from um, spring break. Um, And Sunday is usually very busy with people coming back to buy groceries, people going around and talking to everyone. But right now there are very few people in the USC village. When I went out on walks actually on campus, uh, there it was very empty and I expect it's going to be empty when I go out for a walk today. Have you been out walking in your Gardena community uh, at home? I have not. Um, I'm actually getting ready to go home for next weekend because USC has changed its um policy to keep students safe so they're safe but um in housing so they want people who can go home to go home so yeah. I'm 
getting ready to go back to Gardena and I'll be experiencing that. Okay, okay. I thought you'd been in Gardena and we're coming back to visit SC. Audrey, thank you so much and we wish you all the best with the rest of your sophomore year and online learning as a part of that. Uh, Lake in Burbank tweets at AirTalk, the hiking trail I usually go to in the Verdugos was the most crowded I've ever seen it, both Saturday and Sunday. Cars parked on both sides of the road all the way up when usually it's only a few cars in parked in front of the first trails. That's Lake tweeting at AirTalk Lake in Burbank. And Martin in Mar Vista said, I was running on the beach and I saw people keeping social distancing. All right, Martin, thanks very much. 866-893-5722. I'd like to hear what your experiences were being out in the world Saturday and Sunday. Were people observing six-foot minimum physical distancing? Were they not able to or did they seem simply oblivious Uh, or felt no need to keep the buffer. 866-893-5722. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Having a little bit of a technical glitch with our producers working at home. (laughs) And, you know, just kind of things we're all dealing with. So my apologies if you're calling in. There's a little bit of a delay to get you on. That's just because we're we're dealing with some of the tech issues, as you would expect. Of course, it worked perfectly last week, and today it's bulky. So um, anyway, thank you, though, for calling and talking with us. Let's talk with uh, David in Torrance. David, good to have you with us. What did you experience this weekend when you were out? Hi. Well, yes, I'm pretty crowded everywhere I went. Uh, I typically go down to the beach quite a bit here in Torrance, and um, I saw people, for the most part, keeping social distancing six feet or more. But I saw lots of younger people not really following the social distancing. So uh, that's what I saw. All right, David. Yeah, this is something that we've heard a lot about. And I don't know when you say kids, whether you mean little ones who tend to, you know, run around, they're excited to be at the beach, or if you're talking about, you know, teens and young adults who uh, we've seen the pictures. Is that what you're talking about, David? Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen the pictures from spring break and other places where they're together in, you know, friend groups and like, you know, nothing's going on of concern, uh, just like it's any other day. Uh, And that seems to be one of the challenges with that age group. David, I appreciate it very much. Allie in El Sereno of Los Angeles. You went to the Arboretum? Yeah, so I went to the Arboretum on Saturday. Um, It's still open as of now. And I was actually pretty surprised by how many people there were there. Um, But it's huge. And so it was really easy to maintain social distance. I mean, people were spread really far apart. And even the staff, when you get there, they have this six-foot buffer around them. So they're requiring everyone to buy tickets in advance online. Oh, that's smart. You just show your phone when you get there and they can confirm. Um, or actually, if you have an EBT card and an ID, you can get in for free. So it's a it's a nice place to go right now. Yeah, and doing it in advance makes sense because it gives them the ability to control the crowd. And that's great to hear, Allie, that it was able to remain open. I mean, the more places can stay open for people to go out and still be safe, the better. So I'm glad what you saw was it working at the Arboretum in Arcadia. Uh, Edward in Palm Springs, good to find out what, what happened. That's another, of course, big draw community where people come from all over. What did What did you see, Edward? 
it was it was a great time out there. It was just a a little um, different as far as golf goes. They gave everybody their own individual cart to keep the social distancing. Um, they pulled the flags out so you didn't touch anything. Um, but it was business as usual, a little more packed because other courses were closed. But the neighbors were friendly, although others were yelling at us to go home. Wow. So there were actually people living along the course who didn't want you out playing. Correct. Some were really nice and others were videotaping us driving by saying, like, we're not following the rules. Okay. Even though you were observing the distancing. Yeah, there's. Those are all rules uh, by the mayor or the governor. Yeah. 100%. All right, Edward, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. From Balm Springs, 866-893-KPCC. Patricia in Mar Vista said, I went out to the beach to see whales. I went up the trail on the cliff. It was so crowded, kind of scary. The trail's pretty narrow. It was just so crowded that it felt dangerous. That's Patricia in Mar Vista. Uh, Ted, in Huntington Beach, you went to the dog park there? Yeah, I was at the dog park in Huntington Beach, and I got to say that everyone there was practicing safe social distancing, which is a little trickier with dogs running crazily. But I observed a lot of really good compliance with the governor's orders and the mayor's orders. And the only potential problem I see is with that kiosk. You have to you have to get your ticket and put it in your car window but I think everyone was really being good down here at the Orange County Dog Beach. And I also lead hikes for a living, so it's a little trickier. Yeah. It's a trickier time for me, but I just still think people should need, should check local websites, see what parks are open, practice safe social distancing, and still get outside, even locally. Yeah. Ted, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. The uh, very famous Dog Beach in Huntington Beach. Uh, Next with us is Dave in Long Beach. So, Dave, you drove around Palos Verdes Peninsula? Yeah, we thought we'd get out of the house by doing a top-down drive in the convertible and uh, a nice day. Man after my own heart. And that's a great drive around Palos Verdes. Oh, it is. But uh, from San Pedro, from Royal Palms Beach in San Pedro, all the way around to Torrance Beach in, in Redondo Beach, every single parking lot was absolutely jammed. There were lines waiting to get into parking lots. Um, uh, it felt like the 4th of July uh, it, it, uh, on a sort of brisk March day. Uh, it was just not something uh, uh, that we expected. We didn't really, from the road, we didn't really have a chance to see whether everybody was actually socially distancing down on the beach, but but uh, the entire peninsula was jammed. Wow. Dave, thank you very much. It was sure a beautiful day for a drive with a top down, no question. Dave in Long Beach. Ted, joining us from Joshua Tree. Uh, boy, you must have been inundated, Ted. Were a lot of folks there? Well, that's right, Larry. And, and we had tens of thousands of people trying to get into, get into the National Park, which is closed to automobile traffic. And so it really puts a strain on this tiny little town. And, you know, we only have a couple of restaurants and grocery stores, and they're packed to the max. So we please, we, we love our visitors from L.A. and other places, but we would really appreciate if people would stay away from this little town of Joshua Tree. And if they're not able to get in, what did people do? So they came up, saw the park was closed, just turned around? There were hundreds of cars at the gate, 
And yes, they were literally just turning around. And, you know, and that just brings a lot of a lot of more people into the town. There's only a couple of gas stations. There's only a couple of restaurants, as I said. So everything is overpacked. And it's already just too much of a strain on this little town. So, yeah, it's it's pretty, you know, we, we don't like to tell people to stay away. That's really how we survive sure. the, yeah. as a tourist uh, destination. But this is just a, a unique situation. So we really need to ask people to stay home. Ted, appreciate it. Thank you for checking in from Joshua Tree. Jorge tweets at Air Talk Los Leones hiking trail in Santa Monica was so crowded Saturday. I'm okay if they close all the hiking trails for the safety of all of us. Uh, and Lisa and El Sereno says, I went to a park on Saturday. It wasn't very crowded, but I understand why people want to get out of their own neighborhood. My neighborhood isn't that safe, um, but I get why it's been busier. And Bertha in Santa Monica said, I took walks away from people. I stayed away from the beach. The market on Saturday was really orderly. And Sue in Hollywood says, I went out to try and hike, but it felt like there were three times the amount of people at the trail. It wasn't really an environment that could be effectively social distanced. I feel like people aren't taking this seriously enough. That's Sue in Hollywood. And McKenna in Highland Park says, I went to Eaton Canyon. There were so many people there. It was impossible to social distance. I was waiting in line with people just across the streams. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We'll talk next about the plans for LA Unified School District coming up on Air Talk. We interrupt NPR News to bring you Austin Butner, superintendent of the LA Unified School District. It's not there. Has never been more true as we find the essential role schools play in our lives has been dramatically altered. I want to share what Los Angeles Unified is doing to support our school community and all who are part of it. Students, families, and all who work in our schools. And how we're trying as best we can to restore some sense of stability. In ordinary times, our focus is on three things, to help students learn, provide support to students and families most in need, and take care of all teachers and staff in schools who make possible the learning and support. Even in these extraordinary times, these are still our goals. I wish I could start today by telling you it'll all be back to normal sometime soon, but that's not the case. School closures will extend through May 1st. We'll continue to listen to state and local health authorities and keep the safety of all in our school community in mind as we consider what is best for our students. I'm particularly mindful of our graduating seniors for whom this spring should be a culmination of what, for them, has been a lifetime of hard work and commitment. We'll do our best to prepare them for the next chapter and find a way to celebrate all they have accomplished. Let's review our progress towards our three goals and start with how we're helping students continue to learn. On Friday, March 13th, which seems like a long, long time ago now, every student was sent home with a learning plan for the next two weeks, high-tech, low-tech, or a combination of both. Many students have continued their instructional program using a tablet computer and are participating in regular online discussions about their studies with their teacher on various communication platforms. Some took home backpacks with a series of materials to work on with a pen or pencil, while other students are learning from the shows we created with PBS, which are airing on KLCS, KCET, and PBS SoCal. These shows have lesson plans, including questions and assignments for students to follow. And some students are learning using a blended approach of all three. But we know we can do better. 
We estimate about a half of our students are continuing to learn at the pace they had been at school. Maybe a quarter are doing okay, but additional work is needed to make sure students are getting the full benefit of the learning. And about one quarter aren't getting the learning opportunity they should be. Standing in the way is a great big digital divide. Not all of our students can participate online because they lack the needed digital learning devices at home or even access to the internet. And not all students, families, and educators have been provided with enough training to support online learning. We've authorized an emergency investment of $100 million to help close this gap and make sure every student, regardless of their circumstances, gets the education they deserve. We will provide devices and internet connections for all students and training for all students, teachers, and families. This is an unprecedented commitment, but a necessary one. Many of our families are struggling to make ends meet and cannot afford to do this on their own, but their children deserve the same opportunity those in more affluent communities have. I'm pleased to announce the support of Verizon in this effort. We reached an agreement late last night to provide free internet access for all students in our schools who do not have it. We know there's no substitute for great teaching in the classroom, and this investment in technology cannot supplant the additional training and investment which is so sorely needed in our classrooms. But this action today will pay dividends down the road in support of classroom learning when we return to school. Meanwhile, in the weeks and months ahead, we need to make sure all students continue to learn. And by all, I mean all, including English learners and students with disabilities and learning differences. Let me be clear about expectations as we build our capability in online learning. Our focus in elementary school will need to be on the foundation pieces like literacy, math, and critical thinking. And some things we're able to do in a high school setting, science labs and physical education, for example, will need to be different. It's not reasonable for students or educators nor is it sound educational practice for teachers and students to spend six hours a day in online two-way communication. And families who are struggling to get by in this crisis may not be able to spend all day trying to help their children do their homework. To make sure we do this right, we need the tools in place first. Each student with a device connected to the internet, supported by Schoology, a learning platform which is used in our schools, and communication technologies like Zoom and Google Meetup. And then we need to train teachers, students, and families so they're all comfortable working with these technologies. Most important, we need to help educators create and teach instructional plans using them. We're fortunate to have so many teachers who are already doing this in their classrooms and are now continuing online. Our training will be to share this great practice with all teachers and help them put in place a plan they feel best suits the unique needs of their students. Our second goal, to make sure we help students and families we know rely on the social safety net which schools help provide. On an ordinary day, we serve our students more than a million meals. These are not ordinary days, but our students and families still need support, in particular those most in need. We're operating 60 grab-and-go food centers at schools in the communities we serve to provide meals to those in need. This effort is being led by Los Angeles Unified employees and volunteers from the Red Cross. Others have joined to help, including Chef Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen and Snap Inc. Last Friday, we served almost a quarter of a million meals and helped more people than any other food bank in the country. In addition, we've started a charitable effort to support the food efforts, as well as to provide critical supplies and learning materials to students who do not have them. For those who wish to learn more about this charitable effort, please visit LASTudentsMostInNeed.org. All of this is just a start. We know more is needed, 
and we're working with city, county, state, and federal officials to provide additional much-needed services to those most in need. This morning, we started providing meals at the eight temporary homeless shelters set up by the city of Los Angeles. All right, so... Okay, we just lost it. We'll try and uh, get the feed back momentarily uh, so that we can continue with uh, the speech from uh, the superintendent of L.A. Unified, Austin Butner. But it appears uh, that the feed was lost. It just went dark. And uh, if that's able to be reestablished, we will bring it to you here on 89.3 KPECC. Uh, I just want to take a moment here to just hit some of the important points that the superintendent raised over the course of his speech. Closures in L.A. Unified will be extending to May 1st. You can go to LAUSD.net, LAUSD.net, for details on the school schedule. Also, um, work plans for March 30th through April 3rd are going to be provided to students sometime this week. There's a $100 million investment that's going to be made for devices and Internet access for households that don't have one or both. Verizon is going to provide all students with Internet access, and there will be training in online education for students, families, and for teachers. Uh, Also, uh, Superintendent Austin Butner reporting 100,000 people have been watching the three PBS-affiliated channels that the district uh, is offering uh, various levels of education on. Uh, PBS SoCal has put their two channels available during the day, uh, KCET and KOCE, and also uh, there's the district's own channel, KLCS, that's been providing programming for different levels of students. Uh, The grab-and-go food centers are providing 250,000 meals a day. Uh, Also, L.A. Unified is going to be working to provide meals for L.A. City homeless shelters. And L.A. Students Most in Need is uh, a fundraising effort uh, the district is uh, taking part in to raise money from the public to fund these different Efforts. LA Unified employees will continue to be paid and will continue to receive their full health benefits. So that's the gist of Austin Butner, LAUSD superintendent's speech uh, that ended prematurely because of technical difficulties on their end. So I'd like to hear from you if you are a public school teacher, if you're a student who's home, if you're the parent of a student, your reaction to what the district is doing. I know this is so early on. The devil's going to be in the details. What are teachers actually going to be able to uh, provide for their students? My wife is a speech pathologist with the Glendale District, and she's on a day-long teleconference today um, to um, determine how she's going to be able to offer the speech therapy services to families in the district. We're at 866- 
1-866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. If you're a public school teacher and doesn't have to be LA Unified, could be with any other local district. Or if you're a student or a parent, I'd like to hear what your biggest concerns are at this point, what you see as the biggest challenge toward a meaningful educational experience for kids who for the next month plus are going to be receiving their education online or via television, 866-893-KPCC. While uh, you call, I want to take a moment just to remind you that we still need to raise a total of $1 million during this typical KPCC spring member drive. We've raised two-thirds of the amount that we need towards our million dollars, but we have to keep going until we're able to completely fulfill $1 million. And to help us with that, our very generous life trustee for Southern California Public Radio, Virgil Roberts, his wonderful wife, Brenda, as well. The Roberts collaborating on a $10,000 challenge. When we hear from 300 members by the end of today, we are now 200 members away. We have had an extraordinary outpouring of support in the first hour of, of Air Talk. Wow, we're down to 200 to go. Thanks to your generous support, 866 888 5722-866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. Uh, you can also make your contribution there. I thank you so much. This is so heartening. It means so much of it to us to see this kind of response. It's absolutely beautiful. I appreciate you so much in helping us provide you with the information. And I think just importantly, along with the information, is the ability for us to all connect on AirTalk. It is by far the biggest conversation in all of Southern California. And it's it's a safe place for us to talk about the important things we're dealing with in our lives in this era of COVID-19. Jennifer in Palms, thank you for being with us. I understand you're a teacher. What what do you see as some of the biggest challenges here? Um, I, honestly, I think one of the biggest challenges is just the social emotional factors that we've been dealing with. I know the teachers really miss their students. A lot of students have reached out to me saying that they miss school and they want to be able to go back to school. So I think that, forget the technology, forget the learning. Honestly, that's the number one thing is the heart of the matter. And one of the things that we were talking with an expert about this last week, uh, educational expert saying it's really important for students to be able to collaborate even if they're involved in online education. I don't know what grade level you teach at, but you think that that's important, too, that students have a chance to um, to digitally collaborate. Yeah, I teach high school. I teach high school French. So learning a language is um, really, really requires good collaboration. So one thing I've been doing is um, setting up a teacher Instagram account and posting live feeds and the students can message each other there. Um, and then some of our teachers have also been experimenting with conference calls amongst our students. It, it's hard, though, because it's hard to expect all the students to be online at the same time not knowing what their home situation is like. Yeah. You know, this is a huge challenge for colleges and universities because many of their students go home to different time zones. And, you know, if they're, for example, go to Asia or, or you know, Europe or something, it's, it's a really, so it's challenging with your high schoolers, but at least they're all in the same time zone. Albeit, I know that, you know, finding a quiet place for them to be able to go online 
all together at the same time is a huge challenge. Jennifer, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Let's talk with Kara in Eagle Rock. I understand you're a parent of a public school student. So what uh, what's happened to this point? Yeah, I'm here with my nine-year-old son and my six-year-old daughter, and we've been pulling together all of the resources that are available, trying to sort of catch the learning curve as it grows. We had a Zoom call with one of his teachers, and it was just chaos because she hadn't had the training yet. So we're going to do another one today, and she was sort of throwing herself in and giving herself a training on the fly, and that was great, and I look forward to things improving. All right. And uh, what have you been doing in the interim with your two children? You want to address that? Yeah. You want to say what you, how has it been going for you? Um, yeah. and, and what's your name first? Uh, thank you for, for sharing with us. This is Harris. Harris, okay. Yeah, Harris, what's it like? Um, it's definitely weird for like, cause it's completely different than a normal, than just a, than a normal school day, because instead of being in a classroom of 35 people, I'm sitting at my kitchen table with two people in completely different grades. Yeah. I, it's, it's gotta be a, t- and, and different grades. So they're at different, uh, educational levels than, than yourself. You feel like you're still learning something even with that challenge? Yes, I am learning something, except it's definitely, it's a lot like, um, it's, it's, it's just very different and it's, I'm just, we're still getting, we're still getting used to it, but I think we'll be able to pull through. You sound very, um, very calm and collected about this, Harris. And I wonder, are some of your, your other, you know, friends from school, um, stressed out about this? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't been in contact with them in a while. Okay. That's got to be hard, too. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's you know, nice to be able to spend some time um, with your mom, but um, are you missing your friends? Yes. Yes, I am. All right. I'll bet. Harris, thank you so much. We appreciate your, your sharing your experience. Kara, I would say I'm surprised, but I'm really not, because we know the young people in the AirTalk audience are so collected and well-spoken, and Harris, just another example of that. Indeed. Thank you. Appreciate all the coverage. Thank you, Kara. We appreciate it. And, and obviously, Harris is going to be in well-positioned coming through this, uh, probably taking charge of his own education in many ways. We're talking about what's going on with public schools, with the closure of in-person classes, it moving to online or television education, and the challenge that is for teachers. Kara was just talking about Um, the challenge with the teacher trying to set up a Zoom call and the teacher not being familiar with the technology. Yeah, um, this is something teachers have never had to deal with before, and it's a crash course in how to use the technology, how to adapt uh, the uh, curricula to be able to fit uh, online communication where you don't even know, as we heard from the teacher earlier, whether you can get everybody in the same you know, time to come together and and have uh, interaction online. We're at 866-893-KPECC. If you want to weigh in, if you're a parent, if you're a student, uh, share with us. You can do that. We invite you to be part of our conversation. Again, my thanks if you've contributed 
to this spring member drive to help us achieve this $10,000 challenge from the Roberts, Brenda, and Virgil. We appreciate it so much. Still plenty of time today to support Air Talk. I got to tell you, it's, it's just heartening beyond words the way uh, listeners like you have just stepped up to support the program. You are so faithful and um, it inspires us every day. 866 888 5722. Or you can uh, click and join at kpcc.org. We're supporting the L.A. Regional Food Bank today. So instead of some sort of a tangible thank you gift that you get back, your thank you can be meals for those most in need. And we've heard of so many restaurants that have donated food that they're not able to sell, which which is an economic tragedy for them. Our heart goes out to the restaurants. At least some good comes from the food that's donated to the food bank, and we want to get those those meals onto people's tables when, when they need it. You can help with that. 866-888-5722. Be back in just one minute. Great to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. A little bit later, we are going to do, as we typically do Monday, talk politics. We've got the $1.8 trillion package that uh, has stalled in Congress. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this. The partisan rancor is so thick on Capitol Hill uh, both sides pointing fingers and getting angry with each other. So we're we're going to talk about that. We'll have a reporter joining us later this hour to fill us in on what's going on. And then we'll talk with our political analysts about how all this plays out in the political arena. You know, somehow that seems less important when we're dealing with life and death issues and fundamental challenges to businesses as to whether they're going to survive or not and how many people are going to lose their jobs as a result of that. But the political dimension of it does, of course, matter, too, because it's what happens on the policy front and actions by government that have a huge effect on on how all of this um, manifests in our daily lives. So that's coming up a little bit later. Uh, we invite you to, for, to stay for that. But what I want to ask you right now is if you're a member of a faith, faith community or you lead a faith community, you're a rabbi, you're a pastor, you're a worship leader, um, you're in a, a mom, I'd like to hear what this weekend was like? Did you move to online services? What is it like for you as someone who's a believer, uh, your prayer experience, your fellowship with your fellow congregants? What has it been like for you as a part of your religious faith in having worship services and prayer groups dramatically change? We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Pastors, worship leaders, rabbis, they had all had to learn how to lead their services online and to find a way to connect through the digital barrier that exists when you're not in the same room. And when that sort of community 
that shared experience of worshiping in the same space, how powerful that is, and how different it is when you're sitting at home and watching on a laptop or a phone and connecting that way versus sitting there in a pew and and sharing that faith experience, which for those of us that are people of faith know how deeply powerful that can be physically with your fellow believers. 866-893-5722, or you can share on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can use Twitter at AirTalk, uh, Facebook post on our AirTalk Facebook page as well. Again, if you are a faith community leader, or if you are a worshiper, how is the experience changing? From the Coachella Valley, Mary's in Indio. Uh, Mary, uh, what was your worship experience like this weekend? Well, our pastor um, uh, records his sermon every week, so you can go and get it on the podcast. But last week and the week and this Sunday, we did a live, live um, uh, sermon. So two people came in instead of the whole. Um, music team, just a singer, and um, uh, two people playing a guitar and a violin, and then the pastor gave his sermon, and then everyone knows to make their contributions uh, either online or mail it in. And um, and then Wednesday, uh, we had Bible study, and so he said, well, let's try it with Zoom video conferencing. 42 families, I'm sorry, 24 families uh, came on. He silent, uh, he muted everybody and gave the lecture, and then we broke out into what they call breakout rooms for prayer. Wow! And was that was that still a powerful experience? Did, could it approach what it's like when you're all together doing Bible study? Well, uh, Bible study is a, about interacting and co- talking with each other. So just having him do the lecture, and then when we broke out into groups, we got a chance to talk. Um, my other Bible study is an international Bible study. Um, they went, uh, closed all the classes in Europe and then, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Asia early on, and then all the classes in the United States were closed. And what we did was all the group leaders had 15 women on Zoom, and they did their discussion. And if you've ever used Zoom, you can, everybody can get to talk. You just mute yourself when you're not talking. So it worked wonderfully. The, that way we still got to share. We just didn't have our yeah human uh, interaction. Mary, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're someone who's connected with all these different um, worship and study experiences. Thank you for sharing that. Mary in Indio, 866-893-5722. If you're a faith leader or if you are a worshiper, how has your experience changed? Uh, I know, I, I think this was the second week that the Islamic Center of Los Angeles went to Friday afternoon prayers online. Churches, many of whom typically streamed their services anyway, just to be available for people who weren't uh, physically able to come to service, um, now find the entire congregation has to um, has to take part online. So I'm curious, pastors, uh, worship leaders, rabbis, how did you adapt? 866-893-KPCC. Ian in Sherman Oaks, thank you for joining us. I understand that your church has been online for three years? Yes, we've already been um, up and running for three years. We do Facebook Live, and so we've been building an audience that way. And in the last two weeks, we've had uh, 
we've obviously seen an, an increase in viewership, but also other ministers reaching out and um, asking us, how do we do it? And I've just been giving pro tips, so to speak. Um, what made you found uh, an Internet church as opposed to brick and mortar? Well, it, it's interesting because we did not set out to do that. We were doing a small home church in our in our backyard. We had a gathering of about 25 to 30 people, and somebody filmed it and put it on Facebook. And then uh, people from past congregations that I had served um, throughout the country said, hey, we want to see more of this. And so the next week, we just kind of went online, and we've been winging it ever since, Um and building an, yeah, building a congregation that way. Ian, I know you've been at this for three years, but what was the learning curve for you? Because I assume connecting when you're at a distance from your congregation is a very different experience than connecting, you know, when you're in a sanctuary or, or, or some other kind of space. Almost like acting on stage versus acting in a movie or TV show. It is, it's a different thing. It really is. Um, sometimes, I'll admit, when I'm just by myself in front of a camera, it's very difficult because the energy isn't there. You're correct. The biggest learning curve uh, for us has been how do we, um, you know, how do we put butts in the in the pews? Right, a minister looks out into the congregation and, and sees the number of people there, and they can go, okay, well, it was a, a good convert, um, you know, it was a good Sunday, but we are there 24 hours a day for the whole week. And so we might have 11 people watching live, but by the end of the week, we got a thousand people who have watched. And you can't see their facial response because when you're up in a pulpit preaching or in front of the congregation, you can kind of visually check in with people and see how it's being received. And if you lost your audience or not, you don't have that advantage online. That's true. And we have somebody trying to, you know, people will make comments and then we have uh, someone on our side responding back. We have the welcoming. The part of the community, though, that is interesting is people start realizing, oh, we're praying for so-and-so. And And then, you know, 10 days later, 12 days later, they'll ask, how is so-and-so doing? And I'll just say, why don't you reach out and ask? Yeah. So smaller little communities are building organically. Um, you know, and people are starting to care for one another, people they've never met, yet they feel like I I worship with you every Sunday. So it's been a really an amazing uh, thing that has happened. And again, something I I didn't even plan. You've built a you've built a faith community online. Ian, thank you so much. Sherman, you want to share the name of your online church? The online church is New Church Sherman Oaks. You can find us live on Facebook Sundays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ian, thanks very much. Appreciate you sharing from your experience, you being a veteran of this. Let's talk with Kathy in Irvine, who pastors a church. Kathy, uh, which is your church? I pastor the University United Methodist Church here in Irvine. And we previously had no online presence. So a week ago Friday, we decided that with the current health crisis, we needed to do something differently. So last week, we had all of our healthy choir members come and sit apart from one another and a few leaders. So we had a total of 30 people in our sanctuary, but all spaced out. And we recorded the choir singing about five or six of our favorite hymns. And then this past week, 
uh, we live streamed the first week. And then the second week, so this yesterday, we um, pre-recorded the sermon and I just preached into the camera and imagined my people there. And the response from the congregation was so positive from the first week. We had mission people in Philippines and in Saipan, and we were able to be streamed from there. We were able to be streamed by people who had been homebound since before this social isolation period. And so um, I just imagine my people in the camera as I preach into the camera now. Were were you a little uh, apprehensive as to whether it would connect with people and then breathe a kind of sigh of relief when you got the great feedback. Yes, I was incredibly anxious. This is far outside of my comfort zone. And so thankfully, I have an associate pastor who works with a a Korean dream congregation here at my congregation. And he has far greater skills in social media and in streaming. And he went out and purchased the equipment that we needed in order to have the sound be sufficient and the licensing and all of that. Yeah. Thankfully, I had him to lean on as well. Kathy, uh, thank you so much for sharing your experience as a pastor in Irvine. We appreciate it very much. Let's talk next with Yossi, who joins us from South Los Angeles near USC. I understand you're a member of the Baha'i Faith. Yes, Larry, um, and we have been adjusting, you know, Baha'is all over the world and all over the country meet together normally in people's homes or in Baha'i centers um, and have interfaith devotional gatherings where we pray together, um, and there are no uh, pastors or faith leaders necessarily in the community, um, and so except for institutions uh, to, to sort of govern the the needs of the, the local communities and the national communities. So when everybody was stuck at home, uh, in, instantly people all over the country started Zoom calls um, to organize devotional programming for their, their Baha'i friends and their friends of the faith. And, you know, this, this season is a special season for Baha'is because it, um, it's the Nauru season, which means New Year's. And normally this is a period of time where people are having large parties and festivals and gatherings with their friends all over the world. But because of COVID-19, we weren't able to do that. So um, on Saturday, uh, as an individual initiative, I got together with some friends and we programmed a Nauru's uh, celebration and streamed it on uh, YouTube so that, you know, obeying the rules of 10 people or less in a, in a space so that you know, the Baha'is and their friends all around the world could be connected and feel, you know, festive, even yeah. a really difficult time for people. Yasi, thank you so much. And have you gotten good feedback? Yeah, you know, uh, people all over the country have been having lots of anxiety about this virus. And so to be able to just stream in and feel included and connected, you know, has really uh, lifted spirits. We've had messages from all over the country and some out of the country because we had uh, people contacting in from Italy and China, you know, some of the epicenters of the virus and this crisis. Yeah, and to hear what they're going through. Yasi, thank you so much calling us from near USC. Isaiah in Anaheim, I understand you're a church deacon. You did your online, your worship online yesterday. How did it go? Well, Larry, surprisingly, it went really well. Uh, we made the, the elders made a decision on Thursday to try to do online, and we'd never done anything like that before. And in a matter of three days, the entire congregation of about 130 
people was able to uh, log in uh, to Zoom, which I use for my business, and it, it went really well. And we had actually a lot of participation from the members remotely for prayers and for songs. Different people would come on, and uh, we were able to record it using Zoom. And we had the, the really neat thing was we had a couple of our older members who are uh, infirm or not able to get out for surgery, and certainly very the the high uh, magnitude of you know catching COVID would be really bad for them. They were able to join us. Uh, and we hadn't seen them in a while. And so it, was, it, it actually made it more of a community. By the end of the service, everybody wanted to stick around on the call and just chat and talk with one another like we would do at the building. Yeah. And uh, it, it was really neat to see us all make a community for ourselves online. That's great. Isaiah, What uh, what's your church? It's uh, Tustin Church of Christ, and we're in uh, the city of Tustin. All right. Isaiah and Anaheim, thank you so much for for sharing that. Uh, Let's talk with Hannah in Altadena. How did your online service uh, go at your church yesterday? Yes, it was my first time trying it out, and like some of your other callers, I was very nervous if it would translate uh, with the same emotional import from the pulpit. And I really found that putting um, a lot of my heart and pastoral presence into it worked just fine to translate online. And by the end of it, I think a lot of us were in tears. There was a beautiful postlude that our music director provided from her own living room. And so it really went well. And I'm looking forward to doing more of it. We're also having uh, daily Zoom. Uh, The Men's Fellowship is meeting tonight online as well. So we're continuing our programs. Anna, this is just such wonderful news. What's your church? We are the Unitarian Universalist Church of Studio City. Very good. Anna, thank you for joining me. I have to say, these these calls are just wonderful. I'm so buoyed by hearing how different faith communities have adapted to the challenge of COVID-19 restrictions to have something deeply meaningful for their congregations. Uh, Vanessa in Lockerson, I'm almost out of time, but I just want to squeeze you in real quickly. How'd it go yesterday? Well, just like your other callers, everything's going very, very positively. Um, I'm from St. Luke's of the Mountains Episcopal Church in La Crescenta. We're a gorgeous stone church, and that has been a big draw. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a big leap. You know, are we going to get this dual congregation of half English, half Spanish speaking all online to work together? And my God, it really is coming together. We have a few stubborn people that just absolutely will not use Facebook Live or The technology of Zoom is a little beyond them, but we're working through it, and I really think we're going to be better for it. Vanessa, I appreciate it so much. Great to have you with us. Uh, That's Vanessa and La Crescenta, and the church is gorgeous that she's describing. Richard writes on our AirTalk page, our Quaker meeting has silent worship, listening really, and yesterday we had our first meeting on Zoom. I found it especially meaningful. We were gathering in a way that we could see a little bit of each other's homes and pets. I miss the physical contact. We usually do a lot of hugging, but it felt like everyone was a especially present, maybe because the way we met was so new. That's Richard in Huntington Beach. Richard, thank you for talking about the the Friends meeting. Uh, And let's see, we have Norman Lakewood said we had a virtual service on Zoom. Only problem was it was capped at 100. Our tech person said the next number to pay for is for 500. Uh, Very cool to have people join us who don't come to church. The minister talked about being more tech-friendly going forward. 
I really miss the singing, though. Yeah, Norma, I know that um, a lot of churches, because music ministry is such a huge part of it, are trying to find ways of incorporating, but it's not the same not being able, you know, to sing in the church with your fellow congregants. So, again, thank you so much. Wonderful calls and participation. We appreciate it so very much. You're listening to Where Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I just got an update of where we stand on our challenge. We have 185 members to go. This is a $10,000 challenge by our life trustee of Southern California Public Radio, Virgil Roberts and his wife, Brenda. Wonderful friends, just great supporters of KPCC in so many ways. They're going to provide $10,000 when we hear from 300 members today. 866-888-5722. KPCC.org. Thank you so much for your generous support. I'll be back in 90 seconds. You have to say, you know, being limited in our physical interactions, um, it's a real joy to get to talk with you each and every day on Air Talk. I feel so fortunate to be able to have these conversations. And thank you for your wonderful calls. We turn our attention right now to Congress, where legislation providing a $1.8 trillion stimulus has stalled out. Jennifer Haberkorn, congressional reporter for the Los Angeles Times, is in D.C. on Capitol Hill. Jennifer, can you share with us where, where the impasse has arisen? Well, it sounds like there's a couple impasses right now, one being over policy, another being, um, you know, Congress is just there's a lot of emotion right now, a lot of partisanship. Um, I mean, I think the emotion that people feel around coronavirus has really seeped into the Senate where there's uh, one lawmaker who tested positive for the disease, others in quarantine. Um, So it's 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 really devolved right now. The big policy differences are based around a um, about $500 billion corporate fund that um, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin would have control over. Democrats are worried that there's not enough oversight over this fund and that Mnuchin would essentially be able to hand out this money to whoever he wants and not disclose it for several months. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, apparently later today is going to introduce her own uh, stimulus bill. What's expected to be the difference in that? We don't have the details of the House bill yet. Um, uh, We're expecting those later today. Um, And I don't think it's going to differ too much in terms of uh, payments to individuals. That's also in the Senate bill. Um, uh, We we may see some difference in the amount of money handed out, but um, that's supposed to be in both pieces of legislation. Democrats also want to see an increase in the amount of money that goes to hospitals as well as to funding for personal protective equipment. That's the masks and gowns that we keep hearing about that are in in shortage. So, I mean, just sitting outside of the beltway. It doesn't seem like, given the importance of this, these aren't points that should be deal breakers. You think it is just the high emotions? No, I think, you know, there's 
bipartisanship around any of these big bills, and I think that's seeping into this process right now. Um, I just listened to some Senate floor debate in which uh, Schumer, um, you know, was accusing Republicans of, you know, focusing too much on politics, and Mitch McConnell went on the floor and said the exact same thing about Democrats. Um, you know, I should add that uh, Schumer said that he's close to, uh, he feels like he's close to agreement with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin as of this morning. Um, they've been saying that quite a few times over the course of the weekend, so I'm not sure how much stock put into that. Um, but it is clear that lawmakers on both sides do want to come to a deal in the next few days. Um, they feel like there's a lot of money on the line, a lot of jobs um, and economic impact on the line. So it does feel like that there's going to be an uptick in the seriousness of the talks, but I don't want to give any false promise that things are going to come together too soon. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So next thing we expect is the House version of the bill to to be um, produced. Yeah, that should come out today. And I, we do expect the Senate to continue voting. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, is, is, this is essentially a hardball tactic. He keeps putting up the same uh, vote on the essentially the bill Republicans originally put out forcing Democrats to vote it down. We saw one yesterday afternoon. The Senate just did another one. Democrats voted no, basically saying we're not going to vote yes in in terms of moving this process forward until there's an agreement in principle. Um, McConnell has not said when that next vote would be, but I would expect that sometime later this afternoon. Um, And I expect Democrats to keep voting it down until there's some agreement in principle between Schumer and the White House. All right. Jennifer, thank you so much. Good to have you with us, as always. Nice to talk with you. Los Angeles Times congressional reporter Jennifer Haberkorn joining us from D.C. And with us, as we do every Monday, our political analyst Amanda Renteria of Emerge America, for which she's senior advisor. Emerge is a national organization identifying and training Democratic women to run for political office. She was the national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Amanda, let me let me start with you. Um, uh, COVID-19 has become politicized. You have differences, at least early on, with how people were, were characterizing uh, the coronavirus. Uh, you've got now this uh, at least temporary impasse in Congress. Um, your thoughts about how this has become politicized? Sure. So some of this obviously has become politicized just given the hyper-partisan environment we are in. But some of it is also based on the fact that Congress has been through a stimulus process in the past. And what you are seeing is you are seeing some leaders take those lessons from the past in this negotiation as well. And um, having been there during the last stimulus process, it is a complicated process. It takes a lot of collaboration. And one of the sticking points is How do you ensure that when money goes out, that it is hitting working families? And some of the lessons learned from the past is that there weren't any parameters parameters placed on those funds given to financial institutions. And what resulted is that some of that money didn't get to working families. And so you're finding Democrats who are in the room the last time saying, we're not going to do it again. And we want to make sure that if money goes out to these corporations, it just doesn't go to CEOs and stock buybacks. And so that really is where the sticking point of this negotiation is today. 
and what I think the big pressure points will be if markets continue to fall and if you see more people particularly getting coronavirus in these bodies, that will push an agreement forward and people will come to the table faster. And of course, Amanda, the the key is finding that sweet spot where there are worker protections. As you say, funds aren't just going to CEO salaries, but also businesses have enough flexibility that they don't end up sinking because they can't deal with the employee costs that are associated. And that, you know, this is a huge challenge to find where 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 is that that side that balances those interests. Scott Zentner joins us from Cal State San Bernardino, where he's professor of political science. He's also co-author of the book Party and Nation, Immigration and Regime Politics in American History. Professor Zentner, thank you for being with us. Your thoughts about um, if there's any way to deep politicize coronavirus or is is that a worthy goal um it is a worthy worthy goal to to depoliticize it uh, i'm not sure how exactly you do that most of this is a matter of political calculation i would say um, if you're if you were to take the most cynical view of this it would be that there's a, there's a concern probably among some of the democratic leaders uh, uh, about a rally around the flag effect around the president. There's some uh, some headlines have shown his poll numbers have gone up slightly. Certainly regarding the the handling of the of the crisis. Uh, but uh, uh, to Amanda's point, I think uh, there is some concern about what's actually going to happen with this money. The problem is that if this is in fact analogous to a wartime situation, typically what happens is the Congress delegates a great deal of authority to the executive branch. There's hardly any way really to handle this. I, my understanding in the, in the headlines, uh, what's being floated about uh, this bill, is that there's a two-year limit on CA, uh, increases in CEO pay for the companies that receive the funds. And the president said the other day that he was against the use of the funds for buybacks. Now, part of the problem is that money is fungible. So if money yeah. goes to corporations, uh, there's still this, this problem uh, that you're, you're aiding the companies. So uh, I'm not sure how this is going to shake out over the next day or two. All right. We're going to continue with our political analyst, Professor Scott Zentner of Cal State San Bernardino and Amanda Renteria of Emerge America. Much more to talk about. We'll continue with their talk in just one minute. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Just want to update you where we stand at this point with 185 members to go in our $10,000 challenge. 175 now to go. So that's good news. This is the challenge that's been issued by Virgil and Brenda Roberts, Virgil Life Trustee of our Southern California Public Radio uh, Board of Trustees. $10,000 contingent on hearing from 300 listeners by uh, the end of today. So please make your contribution right now at 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. This time is so important. We've suspended our typical spring member drive so that we can bring you the 
in-depth conversation of COVID-19, but we've still got to raise a total of a million dollars. So this challenge from the Roberts goes a long way toward fulfilling that. Thank you. You've been so generous today. We just need to hear from additional folks right now. That's just the way it is. But we've had so many generous people. I want to thank you very much. We continue talking about the political dimension of coronavirus and what's going on. Uh, I want to talk about how President Trump has been referencing the virus as the Chinese virus. You've had a number of leaning Democrats who've said that's racist, uh, that just because the virus originated in Wuhan province, to, that to refer to it that way instead of as COVID-19 or the coronavirus opens the door to abuses against Chinese Americans, um, that, that people who want to do them harm will use this as a way of, uh, of treating them cruelly. Uh, Amanda Renteria, your thoughts about the tone of the president's news conferences and his use of that term. You know, I'd love the president to spend a lot more time really focused on solutions. And the problem with this conversation is it just adds to the divisiveness within this country, the divisiveness around the world. And we are at a moment when we're in a crisis and we need now more than ever to be working together. And it's this kind of language that just adds fuel to the fire of divisiveness and really pulls people apart um, at a very moment we need them together. And so I was disappointed to hear it. But at the very end of the day, what we need this president to be focused on is how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to show real leadership and bring the world together to solve it? Uh, Scott Zentner, Cal State San Bernardino, um, your thoughts about how the president's been doing in his in his public presentations? Uh, well, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, sort of fun to look at uh, some of the, the memes on the Internet, uh, the outtakes of uh, Dr. Fauci's expressions when sometimes the president uh, goes off the rails a little bit. Uh, I think the use of the word Chinese uh, uh, creates a, a bit of a problem for him. If he had used the term Wuhan, I think it would be, uh, be more sensible. Uh, I'm not quite sure why he's doing this. The divisiveness, I mean, the divisiveness charge can go both ways because the question is why is anyone reacting so badly to it or overreacting to it, uh, the, the president might say. But generally speaking, um, uh, I think I think as I intimated earlier, there is a bit of a rally around the president uh, effect here, and um, I think that plays generally in his favor. Although he could be better at the mic. Also, the Defense Production Act, which uh, the president uh, enacted by executive order last week, um, the governors of you know, California, Illinois, New York really trying to push the president to make specific orders, particularly for medical equipment. Professor, um, do you think that the president should go further than he has? He said he's reluctant to, to for the government to, you know, directly um, interfere, as he puts it, with private businesses. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, the, the first thing is, is how feasible these things are. Uh, we're talking about GM and Tesla making ventilators. I don't know how fa how quickly that can be done. These, these things have to be fabricated. I, I just don't know the, lo the logistics of that. I would just generally say that early on there were folks, the general, the general attitude about the president in, in intellectual circles is that he's an authoritarian and all the rest of it, and he's been rather remarkably restrained, at least on this score. Uh, so I think some of this has to do with just the simple logistics of it and then this 
the sort of framing of the issue. Is he doing too much and then is he not doing enough? I think he's kind of in a, in a no-win situation in, in that regard. Uh, he has issued orders about closing the northern and southern borders except for goods moving across it. Uh, and, um, you know, that's something other countries have, have done as well to c- try and control the virus. Uh, Jennifer Abercorn, uh what are the ways that you think, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Amanda Renteria, what are the ways that you think that the parties could more cooperatively work on possible solutions? You know, I, I think you're seeing real-time work actually happen now, which is good to start to see the the circle widen a little bit. So Pelosi is now back in the discussion. Mnuchin is actually taking a big role. I think the more that conversation is widened with the White House, and it really it, it's counterintuitive, but Schumer and McConnell have had difficulty really moving something forward. So widening the circle is really important. But the other piece here um, that I think Scott raises is this idea that the president is focused on market forces and making sure to give uh, people the, the, the ability to negotiate on their own behalf from the states is an interesting angle, given that this president is usually pretty dictatorial. And so it is going to be interesting whether the president is able to get enough data, enough information to be to be able to step in and make much more of a federal uh, a federal plan for everyone to follow. And, you know, again, that only happens if you have a wider conversation with his administration and with all the Democratic and Senate leadership. And so some of this is about relationship building in as fast as time as you possibly can. Amanda, great to have you with us again. Amanda Renteria, Senior Advisor to Emerge America, and Scott Zentner, Professor of Political Science at Cal State San Bernardino. Thank you for being with us yet again on AirTalk. My special thanks to our AirTalk team members working from home. Great job again, folks. You are the best. I appreciate it. Fiona Ng leading the team here on site with our skeleton crew at KPCC Studios. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for your wonderful calls today. You're simply the best audience ever.